Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Um, you, you, we haven't been here for a while. Well, we were here last night, but, you know, we haven't been... We haven't done a Word in Your Ear for a few months before that, so it's nice to be, it's nice to be back. Uh, with the actual uh, date for your diary, the next one is on May the 9th. Is that right? Is it no? And we're doing a Nielsen and Newman evening. So we've got... Uh, Randy Alex Newman. Gary Newman. Gary Newman and Donald Nielsen, yeah. <laughs> we think it might be one of the less popular. <laughs> Pasty-faced androids. OK. So much for my smooth bit of programming, yeah, though. Cool. But OK. So we start tonight, as usual, in two, in two, in two halves. The, the second half devoted to some chancer who's written a book about 1971. But first... We welcome back uh, a, a, an old friend of the, of the podcast and, and word in your ear in the past, uh, a biographer of Stevie Nicks, of the Jesus and Mary chain. Uh, sorry? Yeah, the slits. The slits, okay. We also call her, she's our Essex correspondent, you know, which is particularly applicable uh, in the case of this book, which is all about Lee Brillo of Dr. Feelgood, rock and roll gentle, gentleman. Would you please welcome Zoe Howe? So, Zoe, obvious question, why a book about Lee Brillo? Well, I suppose, I mean, I guess the starting point for me to think about wanting to write about Lee and, and look into who he was, sort of in his own right, and also, of course, as the front man of Dr. Feelgood, uh, was when I went to see Oil City Confidential, which is, I'm sure many of you know, a wonderful Julian Temple film about the Feelgoods. And it, it just kind of blew my head off for all sorts of reasons. It was amazing. But I just... Also thought, wow, you know, obviously Wilco is very much sort of the star of that film and, you know, he's so charismatic and, and hilarious and charming. But I also thought, you know, Lee was this sort of mystery. You know, obviously he's not here anymore, he, but he, he kind of was a different kind of personality to Wilco. You know, he was less kind of, uh, 
concerned with the limelight, I suppose. He was, he was sort of less starry in his way. Um, and I just thought, well, I'd like to know more about him. He seems really, really fascinating. And I had glimpses of who he was um, and sort of quite unexpected glimpses. Like, you know, he used to write these quite surreal poems and do these kind of strange, kind of almost Spike Milligan-style writings as a teenager. And, you know, he was very well read. And then he became this very sort of... Um, almost a kind of country squire kind of figure right. in his sort of uh, in his 30s you know and it's, it's just lots of quite eccentric elements to his personality so I thought yeah I'd like to I'd like to know more about him and I thought well, maybe I should sort of look into to, to writing about him and I'd also done the book uh, with Wilco Johnson looking back at me um, so I thought maybe this could be a kind of companion um, to that so, book. So is this why it's called Rock and Roll Gentleman? Did, they, did you start with that title or did you um, did I, that I, occur along the way? It occurred along the way, but the funny thing was everybody I spoke to without fail uh, for this book, the first thing they would say about Lee was he was such a gentleman. And I just thought this is, you know, it, it was such a recurring theme. I thought that's got to be on the cover then. What, do you, what do you take that to mean when people tell you that in the kind of music business context? <laughs> it's quite telling, isn't it? it? Is. When people say, he's a gentleman. Yeah, what and thought, maybe it, that's why it was such a big mean? thing. He's, he's not going to chase you or whatever. I mean, what do, you, what, what do you make of it? Well, I think, yeah, that was quite an interesting point because I thought, you know, when you see footage of the feel goods and you see him on stage and he's this quite ferocious, quite sort of sexual presence, very, very kind of, you know, alpha male stalking the stage. And quite obscene, you know, performances, love. You think, yeah, the word gentleman maybe doesn't spring to mind no, immediately. No, no. <laughs> no. But I think, you know, off stage, um, he was a very different kind of person and, and, and quite mild-mannered, very kind, and he took manners very seriously. And, you know, he looked after people and he was generous to the support acts and certain things that were kind of rarities in the music business. And I, I suppose... That's you describe him as, as a, a closet toff at one point, I think, which is a brilliant <laughs> yeah. idea. Yeah, so as if yeah. he wanted to be a kind of faux aristocratic figure. Right. Yeah. Yes, he was sort of, you know, he'd, you know, right at the end of his homework at school, Lee, his name was Lee Collinson, uh, Lee Collinson Esquire, That's and sort right. of things like that. That's so right. it goes right back to sort of being quite young, I think. So when was he born? What, what year? How old was he? He was born in 1952. Right, OK. Um, and actually, he's the only member of the sort of definitive feel-good lineup who actually wasn't from Canby Island. Um, his family were Londoners. Uh, he was actually born in South Africa. His family kind of moved out right. there for a while. And then he moved back to Ealing. Um, and then when he was about eight years old, um, his grandparents lived on Canby Island and they'd go and visit. And he was just totally taken with the whole atmosphere there. You Let's know. talk a little bit about... About Canvey Island, you know, this very alluring Irresistible, postcard. as you can see. You know, <laughs> that was, that was the, you know, a vision of pleasure in the, in the post-war years. Uh, beauty. would turn anybody's head. Uh, I've never, I have to confess, I've never been to Canvey Island. You are our, our Essex correspondent, you know. What are the key elements of Canvey Island? If you, if you had to explain Canvey Island to a Martian, <laughs> imagine I'm a Martian. Well, I think Canvey Island is, has very much got its own identity and it's, it may be because it's an island, you know, it's, it's got its own thing going on and they don't really care what anybody else thinks and they sort of just, just do their own thing a bit and... Um, and I think maybe that's why Lee was particularly drawn as a personality to it, because it, it kind of reflects a lot of the qualities in him. You know, didn't really care what anybody else thinks, just does what he likes. And that's, that was a sort of canvy thing, you know, I think. And, and also at the time, it was quite a lot more rural. And as a boy from London, you know, sort of post-war London, you know, to go to Canvey Island and spend time on the beach and kind of sort of... It was, it was quite kind of like, almost like a kind of, you described that rural folklore as well, that they sort of thought of it as being the, the, the Essex Delta, like the Mississippi Delta equivalent in England. 
and that Wilco Johnson was the Robert Johnson of the Essex Delta. Yes. They, they built a whole fantasy based around it, didn't Absolutely, they? yeah, the Thames Delta, they used to call it. And, and the uh, refinery, they were talked about the light, there's, there's an oil refinery, isn't there? That's right. I suppose it's, the, the Rolling Stones were Dartford, weren't they? So yeah. it's all kind of You could see the same sky direction, would be lit up with extraordinary lights. Absolutely, and it, it, yeah, I mean, up until quite recently, those flaming lights over the refineries were still flaming away yeah. over Canvey, and it is, it's quite sort of strange, post-apocalyptic kind of landscape, yeah. and quite mysterious, and um, and so you had all of that, and you had the old Canvey shacks as well, and so I suppose there were, you know, it was easy to draw comparisons. So they made their own kind of glamour out of it, out of, you know, what wasn't obviously promising material. This is a map of Canvey Island. Where, where's the, is there a posh bit and a kind of, you know... Uh, do we, I don't know. I've no idea. Is there an uptown? Is there a <laughs> difficult urban bit or whatever? Is there, you know? Well, this was sort of the that end was known as the the nice end of Canvey. Here's the nice end. That was the nice end. Tropical and, rainforest. And, so, so who, and you could who look lives over in the here, nice end? You'd have you'd, you'd have the view of Hadley Castle. There's a kind of ruined castle. Oh right. So you look that way, and, and yeah, it's, and it's all the, better. Oh yes, absolutely. Right. right. <laughs> so whereas if you look the other way, it's it's kind of worse, is it? It's uh, yeah. You look. If you look that way, you've got the refineries on right. uh, Stanford La Hope, aka Stanford No Hope, right. as that probably yeah, tells like you a bit the, about. They called Basildon Baz Vegas. Yes, Baz Vegas. They sort of revelled in that <laughs> kind of ghastly, chintzy awfulness. Yeah, everything. they sort of turned We're it on its head. Proud of it, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. and there was a kind of glamour in that, and I think also. And again, it sort of precedes the punk attitude thing. Is when the feel goods did start to kind of start getting somewhere and getting some attention. The whole thing of well, it wasn't sort of oh, we better move to London or we you know we no. better sort of play the game. It was like no, they can come to us, yes. and they did yeah, in their yeah, droves. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that be- that became part of their uh, their thing. They, they tell us about about Lee as a schoolboy. This is this is from his school exercise book, isn't yes. it? It's so inventive so, and funny. These yeah. Things. Well, well what kind of person was he as a you know, teenager. Well, this is one of the main, my favourite kind of periods of the Lee story was was Lee as a teenager because, you know, I was very fortunate that um, one of his old school friends had kept lots and lots of exercise books that they'd sort of written sort of crazy stories and done these sort of Heath Robinson-style diagrams. It was all very, very inventive. But Lee Collinson, a.k.a. Collie, as he was known as as a kid, um, was massively ahead of his time. And I think everybody really looked up to him. It was almost like he was at least five years ahead of everybody. Of the rest of the boys in the school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? And he was quite, yeah, quite a commanding character. I think possibly occasionally a bit of a, possibly a, bit of a bully, I think. Right. You know, he, he was quite anarchic and he strained against the rules. Um, and this it, is terrendous irony, isn't it? Point yeah. six is pupils with imaginations must not bring them to school. It's <laughs> a lovely idea, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, he was sort of, you know... Each schoolboy must have a head. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I just but love them. it must them. not be in excess of 20 inches in diameter. So brilliant. <laughs> it's very late 60s rag mag, isn't it, this kind of thing, you know? It's slightly surreal. It wasn't mm. it Viv Stanchel of the Bonzos from Southend? There was a connect. Yeah, Viv Stanchel so, was a Leon C connection. they big fans of the Bonzos? Definitely. Nonsense. Yeah, all of that. There's a Monty Python, oh, Spike Milligan. Yeah. Yes, absolutely Bonzo, yeah, Nick, Viv Stanchel was the interesting thing that one parent was very tall. And That's one right. wasn't. Well, one was working class, and yeah. his whole act was moving between was, the was two. Exactly, being one and the other. Absolutely. That's between, very interesting. Between We've stumbled one. across something. And there. The yeah, other yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, but he's quite good at school, isn't he? He's, he's quite strong at school, mm. but he, he doesn't kind of carry on with it at all, does he? No, he could have done. He could have done. Presumably, could have gone to university and whatever, Absolutely. but didn't particularly 
have an interest in doing that? No, I sort of got the impression he just sort of wanted to kind of get on with life. But I think, I think in later years, and, and it's been talked about, you know, he didn't go to university, Wilco Johnson did. And I think maybe, you know, he, he sort of felt a little bit, yeah, maybe you know, a bit insecure about that. But these were in the days when people could leave school and get a job straight away as a solicitor's clerk, he yes. did, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Serving writs on people and, <laughs> yeah. and, and all that, he, which he took to. He loved he? it because it was almost like, I think the thing with Lee as well that really comes across, he likes a sort of a bit of a sense of theatre and sort of being able to kind of dress up a bit. And so he'd have this sort of sharp pinstripe suit and they'd, they gave him a sort of company car to sort of pose around in. And he just sort of enjoyed the he said because it's on Canvey Island, things work differently on Canvey. And, it was, you know, he could pretty much just do what he liked. And the governor wasn't really around very much. So it was just, right. he just sort of spent his time kind of placing bets on horses and so, posing around in his suit. So by then, he's, he's, he's got an interest in music, which he's pursuing. Yeah, this was a little bit before. So he would have been a, a, in his teens, um, possibly about 14 here. This uh, is his jug band. Um, and, yeah, he got absolutely... He became obsessed with the blues, um, really became a kind of scholar of it, and uh, sort of collected records and, and turned a lot of his friends onto it as well. And they, uh, and they formed a jug band, and they, uh, they sort of uh, trolled around busking, and they did the, the famous World Tour of Kent. Uh, that was one of theirs. <laughs> and won an impromptu fourth prize. <laughs> uh, yeah, won an impromptu fourth prize uh, at Canvey Carnival. Bernard Brain MP uh, awarded it to them. And here we have, standing up at the end, that's Chris Fennick, who would go on to be... It was a very um, important figure. A it? very important figure, yeah. He was the, uh, well, still is, uh, Dr. Feelgood's manager, uh, very much Lee's right-hand man. And we also have um, Sparco, uh, feel-good bassist. I think that's yeah, on the guitar there. Um, so it was very much a kind of nascent feel-good thing. Um, but he's playing guitar here, but then he would go on, you know, obviously to be, be, be a singer. But so Chris Fennick, a drama student, wasn't he? Was that his, his thing? Yeah, he became was... an actor. That was another right. sort of part of his That's life. That's another part of the Dr. Feelgood thing, isn't it? The yeah. kind of... They were dressing up and playing a part, weren't yes, they? Yes, definitely. And I, I like that sort of sense of, um, you know, almost vaudevillian kind of dressing up and, you know, playing the show and putting it, you're all into it and all of your energy and, and sort of treating it as a piece of theatre almost, right. um, which was very thrilling and obviously being quite different people off stage. But, um, but yeah, this is obviously an early publicity shot of the chaps. So, so when's this, <laughs> roughly? Well, this would probably be 71. Because oh, wasn't Wilco is only just starting to come, come back from his hitchhiking to India and doing his kind of hippie stuff and he was wearing caftans. That's things, right, yeah. So what, what, had, what had changed in him? What had, was, it, was it just his interest in blues that made him drop all that psychedelic stuff and get involved with him? I don't know if that ever really went away, to be honest, but I think, you know, because he was about five years older than Lee... Um, and when he came back from India, you know, I mean, Lee really looked up to him and he loved hearing these stories about India and obviously Wilco had gone to university and read all these books and he was very political and that really kind of uh, inspired Lee in lots of ways. Possibly at the time, you know, ways that Wilco could have never imagined, I think, you know, because there was a bit of that alpha male thing going on because despite the age gap... Wilco was also quite in awe of Lee as a character as well, even though he was a lot younger. It was like, wow, this is quite a special person. Yeah. Um, and they were really, really good friends in those days as well. And I know that, uh, you know, it's terribly sad the way it, you know, developed. And, as and we shall discover. Indeed, yeah. indeed. But they were very close. And had but a lot you, of you always believe that the bands never change the hierarchy of age, do they? I, I've always thought that was the case, you know. Like the Go Beatles, on, explain. You know. Well, it just if, if, if John Lennon is the oldest and, and, and Paul McCartney is two years younger than him, 
and actually Ringo was Ringo was older than John Lennon, wasn't it? Ringo, but, exactly. but George Harrison's the one. Then those 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 hierarchies are set in place as they would be in a school classroom, and they never really change. And actually, at the very end of the Beatles, that they still thought of George as this little <laughs> nipper who was lucky to be in the group at all, you know, even though he was twenty-seven or whatever. Right. And I'm sure exactly the same thing was set in stone here, really. Yeah, those, absolutely. It's like looking up to older brothers or teachers or whatever. So they put the group together mm-hmm. and they start playing where. Well, they start playing, um, you know, sort of pubs around Canvey Island, South End on Sea, South End Esplanade, um, and also they uh, they got a chance to. I mean, they, they played a lot of um, kind of functions, and they they sort of tried to put sort of rock and roll covers into their set just to sort of please the punters. And they play at sort of awful pubs like the Railway and Pitsy, aka the Flying Bottle, and it was all kind of quite quite <laughs> the glamour. <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of leads. So there were some fairly unreconstructed Ted's, were they knocking yeah. around? There were, kind of yeah, and I, I think bet. it was. I think that's why they kind of. Well, I think they knew what they wanted to do and they loved the blues things. It was very tough and quite sort of mean. Um, but, you know, playing in places like that, Lee sort of really stepped that up because it was almost like you kind of had to front out the crowd yes. a little bit. kill and say, or be killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a lot of truth in that. Yeah, so, so sort of do... Is it around about this time that they go and see Howlin' Wolf in the back room of a pub in Essex? Well, actually, that would have been a little bit earlier. I think that would have been in the 60s. So Lee would have still been at school and he, he and Chris Fenwick uh, went down. I think Chris was still in his school uniform when they went down. There's a pub in Romford uh, called King's Head. I don't know if it's there anymore, but Howlin' Wolf was playing. And it said outside, oh, Howlin' Wolf, yeah. tonight. It, it's, it's tonight mad. in it's Romford. For one night only. <laughs> was, wasn't there a slightly obscene dimension to Howlin' Wolf's stage act? Or yes. say, which, 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 which Lee was quite impressed by and did all sorts of uh, amusing things with microphones. Yeah, indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think all, all of those things come from Howlin' Wolf. Yeah, you know, yeah. the sort of the, the, this kind of ejaculating beer bottle antics right, and all that kind of thing totally comes from... Yeah, that's what he was doing. Howlin' Wolf was doing all of that and yeah. kind of you know Lee was really lit up by that performance and just yeah. couldn't believe you know this is quite old guy you know at the time right. um, just sort of tore it up in this this sort of room in this very unatmospheric pub in in, in East London and the sort of daylight still streaming yeah. through the windows no atmosphere but he just rocked you know yeah. so I, I don't know exactly what year this is but yeah, it's round about this time this time tell us about the development of the look because, you know, you look at the earlier pictures and it's just a bunch of guys, you know, in denims that have turned up to play. Whereas here, you've got, you know, the look that, yeah. uh, that made Dr. Feelgood, haven't you? Absolutely. And it's got, I mean, it's... I, I like it because they're all quite quite distinct, but it, there is it's a sort of united front. But you know, I, I always he makes me think of Jake Blues, big figure there, standing in the port, looking very menacing. He was an absolutely lovely man, and he said, you know, I, I kind of had to sort of really, you know, Lee kind of egged me on, sort of be so this character. He's a real sweetheart, but you know, absolutely be at the front, look hard. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what he did, extremely effectively. And I think it was, yeah. I mean, obviously Wilco still got a bit of flare action going on, but the, the trousers are getting slimmer. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I quote the thing that, that, that uh, Cosmo Vinyl said? You, you, you can have a band that looks good and plays bad, but you can't have a band that plays good and looks bad. Absolutely. That's right. an amazing, I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, it's really perceptive. There's some truth in it, too. Absolutely. It really is. Yes. You can, yeah. you, as long as you look fantastic, you can be awful. Because the thing that was really different about Dr. Feelgood, in my memory at the time, was ties. Yeah. Collars and ties. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. bands hadn't worn collars and ties. No. For quite a few years, apart from Bebop Deluxe, who used to wear great, huge kind great of knotted ties. Noel Edmonds Kibbles. type, you know, yeah. Peter Wingard, huge yeah. knots. Whereas this was very different. You know, they were they 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 were the 
they were the start of that, that whole business of groups dressing up to play. Which still goes on to this day. Yeah, and I think that's another part of the... You know, it was, it was all part of taking the show seriously yeah. and putting on a show. But I think also, you know, Lee Brillo used to get very upset by Kipper Ties. And, uh, and he used to sort of, you know, he was known to sort of actually go up to people in pubs, you know, just see if he saw a man in a Kipper Tie at a bar, he'd, he'd sort of, you know, take him to task and say, you know, say, look, your tie should not be any wider than your finger. And that's a <laughs> bleeding bedspread. And like, I think he actually pulled a man's tie off in a, in a sort of drunken rage, at, at tie rage. So but uh, yeah, he took rules. it very seriously, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I, like, I kind of like the idea that they're sort of, um, you know, the, as you say, the look's kind of re- revolutionary in a way. But it's almost like, you know, he's a kind of, uh, you know, w- what is he? He's a kind of off, off-duty DI, you know, sort yeah, of corrupt... Yeah, well, it's the Sweeney, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit Dennis yeah. Waterman, isn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah. he's yeah. got the dirty collar water. and he's just like, yeah. he's been up all night on a case of popping pills and yeah, he's a bit yeah. corrupt. You know, he's all got, that He's got a thing. bottle of whiskey in the filing cabinet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. a real TV Advisor. cliche. That, yeah. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. It's fantastic. And, it's, um, and I know it inspired a lot of people to uh, cut their hair and stop wearing flares and, yeah. and, and just look a bit sharper, I guess. This is a picture from the Wembley Rock and Roll Festival that took place in 1972, which I think was a very significant event. This is the first time I think Wembley... You know, open air had been used for a kind of music thing. And these Teds came out of absolutely everywhere. See Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard. And I think Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood were selling their... Selling drape jackets. Reconditioned Ted gear. But Dr. Feelgood played here. They did. Yes, they did. And they only played to 150 people before. (laughs) They were playing to... Was it it really 80,000? Yeah, something ridiculous like that. And it looked like the night before they'd played the railway in Pitsy, you know, to 20 people who couldn't really be bothered. But it was was a sort of funny point in their trajectory because they'd just got a a gig um, playing with Heinz, um, who was living in South End? This is not the soup. This is the <laughs> former tornadoes. The former tornado. Joe Meek, protege. Right. And uh, love Hines, interest of Joe Joe Meek. Allegedly so, and he was living in South well, End. Safely dead. <laughs> Indeed. <Yes>. Let's say so. <laughs> he was busy work. selling advertising <laughs> yeah. space for the South End Echo at the time. Was and, he? Uh, yes, he was. Hines was selling ads on the South he End was, Echo. Yes, sad, sad times, but he was. Uh, he was picture on well. picture amongst the classified. Yeah. To advertise here, call Hines. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> picture of him. Just imagine that. He sort of got cottoned on to the fact there was a bit of a kind of uh, rock and roll revival going on. So he thought, well, maybe I'd better sort of get a band together. And um, word got round the sort of local South End scene. And I think someone said to them, well, you know, this band ought to feel good. They're really good. You know, they, you know, they don't look like Ted's, but they're playing all these rock and roll covers. And so they went round to audition in, in Heinz's shed, and uh, he wasn't too keen on them, but he said, yeah, okay, that you'll do. But they, they were only ever allowed in the back, the back way. He never wanted them to be seen. I think they all looked a bit right. grubby and scruffy and a bit mean, and he didn't like the look of them. But so you'll do, you'll do Meet Me at Wembley Stadium <laughs> yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> Bring your equipment. They did a few You could say the roots of punk rock to some extent, couldn't you? If, 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 oh, I think Vivian in and, 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 and uh, McLaren were selling old drape jackets, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yes. they went on to do in And I think, actually, a member of the New York Dolls was here as well, Yeah, and then, which is another connection there. But anyway, so move forward to Dr. Feelgood. They get a rec- recording contract with United Artists, Andrew Lauder and so forth. This is the... The first album. What year are we talking here? This is 75. 75. And this was famously issued on in mono, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. But they didn't by, intend by mistake. No, yeah. Press the wrong button. 
that right? <laughs> I think they just sort of... It wasn't like a kind of deliberate... They always wanted to make a point saying this is not a deliberate attempt to be sort of retro and, OK, we're sort of playing 60s R&B and, and we've got short hair and suits on, but we're not trying to be kind of retro. Um, but obviously that was picked up on. But they just thought it sounded better in the end, you know, when they mixed it. Um, because they didn't like that there was a kind of craze for so everything was in stereo. But if you were listening to something in a pub, you'd had sort of one sound coming you'd out here. It, it wasn't, bit, yeah. yeah, they didn't like right. that. So yeah, that was yeah, the only yeah, reason yeah, it wasn't yeah. a kind of a pose or anything. But they, you know, Wilco said if you put mono on the front, everyone will just go on about that. And lo and behold, we're still we're talking about it now. Yes, <laughs> he was it right. It but worked. it was it was quite a big hit, wasn't it? I mean, they they made a splash nationally. Pretty yes. much from the beginning, didn't they? Yeah, and it, and it also sort of made its way over to New York and people, you know, like sort of significant New York luminaries were, were sort of playing it at their loft parties and, you know, it was it sort of definitely talked about as a very influential record. Why did they t- take against the Ramones? It's very interesting the bit where the, the Ramones support them, I think. Yes. They said something like that they thought the Ramones were just four intellectuals <laughs> pretending to be little punks. Yes. Which I thought was quite an interesting thing to say, really. Yeah, yeah. Because you could say there were at least two intellectuals in this band, but they seemed to be completely authentic and, you know, it worked and I nobody minded. I don't know minded. why... Yeah, I remember... Yes, I remember that quote and it's, it's Lee's quote. I, I don't know, he did, yeah, didn't seem very impressed... By no, them, I think, yeah, but I think they, I think they, they were, were very good spirits, really. Well, yeah, exactly. I think they were obviously quite in awe of them as well, yeah. um, and 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 were, were, were probably rather nervous around them, and maybe that affected their manner towards them. And he just thought, well, you know, you but, can't imagine you know. them sharing Doctor Feelgood's all-consuming interest in drinking. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get on to that. The which drinking is heroic. Will, it's just we'll come phenomenal. On to. Oh, the white so, suit. This is the the um, you know the the. Everybody in, in Dr. Feelgood had a, had, a, had a character, but the key characters were at the front of the stage, which yes. were Lee Brillo and, uh, and Wilco, mm. you know, which was an extraordinary act, wasn't it? You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, how did they develop that? Well, I think it's, you know, I suppose, as you say, going back to the look, that was a big part of kind of, in, you know, reinforcing these characters. You've got almost like they're kind of chess pieces. You've got the Black King and the White King. Or, you know, it's, and I suppose part of what was so electric was that you had these two incredibly strong characters. And I suppose that was quite rare. Normally you'd have, you know, a very strong front man and, you know, the rest yeah. of the band. So you've got these almost it's like two planets colliding. But uh, With a lot of rivalry eventually, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Which one was the more popular? Was it, was it Wilco? Wilco, because, yeah. Because afterwards, there'd be a huge queue of people to meet Wilco and get his autograph, and not very many for Lee, which he yes. found heartbreaking. Absolutely. Know? I mean, I, so I suppose, I, don't, I can't imagine Lee caring too much about that, but I suppose, in a way, I suppose it's just a sort of male kind of pride thing. He would, not outwardly. It would, have a little, <laughs> yeah. it would chip away at you a bit, and I suppose, you know, he, they, they, you know, there were problems, and, and they, Lee drank a lot. At the time, Wilco was teetotal, but he was on speed all the time. So those sorts of things do create... You can imagine create... that's a perfect marriage. <laughs> a bit One's of a kind separation of gnashing furiously in his hotel room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, you know, when on stage, it really looked fantastic. And, you know, so you had sort of Wilco just zooming around the he stage. Did. I mean, he did. Yeah. He was like on rail. guitar. Yeah. And, and while he was doing that, Lee would be completely ignoring him or having a drink or just sort of staring at someone. But, you know, one of the things that Wilco always said was that for him, no matter what anyone else said, Lee was the star. Lee was the kind of commander of this army. And Wilco, he said, if you look at footage of us, I'm looking to him. And it's almost like he's giving me my directions. And, you know, I'll go off and do a solo. And he's, you know, so, and you, you can see that he is sort of always looking to Lee for his sort of, uh, you know, directive in a way. And, right. and that's all part of the kind of show, I suppose. The, this, uh, the, the famous white suit that yes. he 
he adopts, which is obviously the least practical piece of kit <laughs> yeah. for, for somebody planning to do a club tour. Tell yeah. us, how did that... Did but it get lost? It was deliberate, wasn't it? It was, oh, it was yeah. there to show the grime. Never knowingly bothering just, a dry I, I cleaner. I remember seeing him, he rolled on the floor and spilt beer and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, it was because it was quite a physical show, as you say. Yeah, it was like yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like, you know, doing press ups and kind of like <laughs> rolling around on the floor. And you know, yeah, it was like a kind of like a defiance about wearing white and then doing all that and never cleaning it. And, yeah. and you know, the clothes would literally never just clean be. Never cleaned it. Well, apparently not. Of course, I spoke to one of the roadies and he said, you know, it's all true. It, it had its own flight case. Yeah. <laughs> it'll just be taken just off and just run it into a flight case, flight case on take it out, yeah, yeah, take it out the next night and put it on again. Right. And apparently it really was quite foul for everybody to, to sort of... Uh, nobody wanted to be near it at all. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, legendary. Sort of, but, you know, battle-worn, blackened <laughs> white jacket that was just sort of became so legendary that the enemy only ne- needed to put that up and everybody knew whose jacket it was. Right, right. So they, they put out... Two albums, and then they put out the live album, didn't they? Which was that was the big breakthrough, wasn't it? Yes, went straight to number one. Yes, it? stupidity. The live album went to number one, and I think it, that was really significant for lots of reasons, of course. But I think for you know Lee and Wilco and the, you know the whole band, they really felt that you know it's all very well putting out these studio albums, but the people who come to see us and love us love us because of the live show, and it, it's very hard to convey that uh, in a studio. Um, so. Uh, and they came pretty close, you know. It's, it's hard to, 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 to record, you know, have a live album. You don't really get the full sense of it, obviously, but they came pretty close, and it just, yeah, rocked. Describe the, what went wrong here, because, it's, you know, Wilco then, right at their very peak, it appeared, just left the band, or was sort of pushed out. You couldn't tell if he was pushed out or he, or he jumped. But, well, I, mean, I, w- I would say, I mean, I hope not upsetting anyone here, but I would say he was... He was pushed out. He says he was pushed out, but, I mean, it, it certainly sounds like, you know, from, from talking to everybody who was there, you know, it was if... if yeah. If it wasn't that, it would have been something else. They sort of almost found a reason because it just got so bad. Um, it certainly didn't come from nowhere. That sort of final row. Um, it had just sort and of been building up. He hated America, didn't he? He, he hated America. He couldn't have any success in America because he loathed the place. And was yeah, that was a big problem. Just sulked. Yeah, that was a big problem because they were just they were you know pr- everything was primed for them to really kind of crack America and. And it just, you know, unfortunately, just went horribly wrong. They, they were given a tour with uh, supporting Kiss of all people, yeah. <laughs> which you can't really imagine that working. But uh, and and the first date, they were like, right, you know, this is a big opportunity. We'll be playing stadiums. Fantastic, let's do it. And um, and they turn up for the first date in Alabama, and uh, they're blocked by Kiss's road crew, uh, who say you can't can't come backstage. Kiss can't be seen without their makeup. <laughs> And so they were stopped, and they said, well, you're going to have to change in the, uh, in the bogs front of house. Right. And they just, they just said... They just said, we're not doing it. Wil- Wilco had it through a, 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 yeah. a wobbler, and, uh, and they were work. chucked. It doesn't play well in Canvey Island. <laughs> 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 well, you know, he probably could have got away with that maybe, maybe here, but, you know, nobody really knew who they were at that stage. Yeah. In the he just didn't care. It was like, well, you know, just get rid of them. And, 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 and so they were sent So they also, they also toured with Gentle Giant, didn't yes. they? Yes. Which is even more unlikely than Kiss, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. They got on really well with Gentle Giant because when they came over for one of these... Uh, Sweet guy. <laughs> these CBS conventions, uh, they kind of hung out with them and, and I think maybe that was where the connection was. 
um, and, and yeah, lovely guys, but it, it didn't go well because obviously Gentle Giants fans hated Dr. Feelgood. They couldn't stand oh, them no. and they just sort of heckled and abused them every single night and they were, dog- you know, Lee Brillo doggedly trying to take the Feelgoods through this set every night and it got to the stage where even Gentle Giants sort of sat them down and said, why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourselves through this? This is awful, even to witness. But it was just, you know, determined, this is what we're here to do, but it just didn't, didn't work for them. So Wilco leaves... Um John Gippy, Gippy Mayo, Mayo <laughs> joins. Yes. And was a very good guitar player. He's fantastic, but yeah. The charisma the charisma is gone, hasn't it? I mean, do you think that's fair to say? Well, I think it's it's really hard to follow someone like Wilco Johnson. I think you know, Gippy Mayo was was like a kind of a rock star in his own right. And he had so much going for him, but I think following Wilco must have been incredibly hard. And Lee always said to him, you know, don't try and do a Wilco, you know, just be yourself and just do your thing. And he played in a very different way. He was an amazing musician uh, and, and could pretty much pick up any, any musical instrument at all and play it with great proficiency. So he was a star in his own right. Um, but obviously it would never be quite the same as the sort of definitive lineup. You don't have that danger. That's the thing about Wilco. You, you thought, what's he going to do yeah. now? <laughs> Uncontrollable. It really did Manics. look absolutely uncontrollable. Now, this picture also just sees them pursuing their key hobby. Yeah, this is their natural habitat, isn't it? In fact, is, is this, was it the Admiral Jellicoe? Admiral Jellicoe pub on Canvey Island. But yes, essential research going on here. <laughs> I just so seriously, I mean, the they drink. did, they, drinking's what they did, isn't it? Absolutely right, yeah. I mean, it was, if they weren't on, well, if they were on tour as well, I'd be drinking all the time, but, you know, the, the routine when they were back home on Canvey was sort of get up, have a cup of tea, you know, have some breakfast, go down the jelly start shooting some pool, just start drinking and just sort of, you know, any, any of the characters who'd come in just sort of hang out with them for the day. And people would come from all over the world to, you know, once they cottoned on to the fact that this was the feel-goods local and come and visit the Admiral Jellicoe on Canvey Island. And but it's also <laughs> a, kind, a kind of music that, that can benefit from the people performing it being pissed. You know, it's quite interesting. It's, it's, yeah, you know, in a way, yeah, because they used to get really drunk before they went on, didn't they? Yeah, that's and, and right. And felt it made it better. You yeah. Know, I mean, you know, if you were a member of Steely Dan, you wouldn't get blind drunk because it <laughs> play something in 13, 12 times signature, you know. But in a way, that might have been partly their undoing, that they were in a world where, you know, you were, they were expected to be drunk and they were drunk. It was being stoked and facilitated and were, yeah, absolutely. all kind of from all directions. I yeah. think it was one of the things that irritated Wilco was, you know, he'd be writing, the, you know, other than the covers, obviously, you know, that he'd write, he was the main songwriter and he'd say, and Lee would go on and sing the same verse three yeah. times because he was out of his head. Right. And he'd just be like, well, I bleeding wrote that, you know. <laughs> so whereas when Jippy came along, he was absolutely up for the up for the party and up for the drinking, and uh, and it all fitted very nicely. So this continued right through the the, the rest of their their working life, didn't it? Yes. The, the, the kind of drinking came first, didn't it? Yes. Before the gigs, they were, <laughs> yeah, the priorities. They were going, they, you know, they'd out. have three bowls of wine at lunch. Yeah, and, and and a nice lunch as well was very important as well. They, that would but they would reroute, you know, they would route tours around where the sort of to the best roast restaurants were. You know, that was very much a Lee Brillo thing, you know, it had to be, you know, his little sort of Michelin uh, sort of guide by his side, you know, we're going to go to this place now. And that, that was absolutely a huge part of touring, certainly, you know, from the 80s, you know, because touring is very hard to eat well, isn't it? So he, he took that very seriously and right. it almost got to the stage where lunch was actually more important than the gig. Yeah. <laughs> but that, and, but they, the weird thing was, he, he liked to go to nice establishments. Right. But nice establishments didn't always want the feel-goods right. in there. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's part of your gentleman concept. Probably, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So did he get turned away from dining rooms? I think people attempted to turn him away, but I think he was quite a hard man to turn away. But, I mean, there was one story 
where they uh, they booked, a, you know, he'd rung in advance and he'd booked a table at this nice place on the way to the gig, and uh, they all turned up looking quite scruffy. Um, and there was a bar, and they bought themselves a drink, and they were just waiting, you know, lunchtime. And then they were about to head through to the restaurant, and the uh, proprietor said, "I'm sorry, you can't come in. We're fully booked." And he said, "Well, I've booked a table. You know, one of those tables is right." No, no, it was quite clear that she just didn't want them there. And he had his drink in his hand. He said, well, if you want us to behave like animals, we'll behave like animals. And he just tipped his pint onto the floor in front of her. So he said, all right, you can have a table then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> yeah. works. Yeah. Do come in. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So, you know, he, he would take, take offence at things like that. You know, sort of little petty injustices really yeah. pissed him off. Did he have any remorse about his drinking? Um, it, it certainly didn't look that way. I think he, <laughs> I think he, t- he, he enjoyed it. It was a part of his, you know, a lot of people would say, I never really saw him kind of absolutely, you know, blind drunk kind of, he, he was seen to be pretty much in control of it apparently. And it was just something that he enjoyed. He liked drinking, he liked eating, he liked kind of living uh, in quite a sort of full, right. uh, indulgent way, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but he worked really hard and I suppose he sort of thought that that was all kind of part of the thing. But this, this is Shirley, this is... Uh, These high quality his... snaps, I'm sorry, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> scanned out of your book. You do but... feel so sorry for the, for the rock and roll wives though because, you know, it's such an abnormal situation that the husbands are either never there because yeah. they're on tour in Europe or they're there all the time. Yes. You know, and, and, and neither of those things are particularly fantastic, really. <laughs> well, Shirley was quite rock and roll. Shirley was yeah. quite rock and roll as well and I think they, you know, he definitely met his match in Shirley and you know she she would say you know if he it's probably just as well he wasn't there all the time because that you know she was keeping up with the drinking and you know she was from Louisiana so she she was kind of part of a kind of drinking culture as well you know she was so he met her on tour in Louisiana well actually she was living in San Francisco at the time and they met at a party there and actually San Francisco was one of the you know, they, they they actually did really well there, and in New York and LA, and sort of the, those sorts of places, they actually went down really well. Um, and uh, and yeah, basically, they it was at a party where a band called Clover were playing. Oh, we know them well. I'm sure you, yeah, Huey Huey Lewis's yeah, uh, band Clover. First Elvis Costello album, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. And Nick Lowe was a massive fan, yeah, and Nick yeah, Lowe yeah. was with them at the with, with the, the Feel Goods in America at the time. So we got to go and see Clover. They're fantastic. They're as good as the band, you know. And, uh, and they sort of tracked them down. They were playing at a party and sort of hung out a bit. And uh, Clover invited Lee up on to sing on, on stage to sing with them. And, and they hadn't heard Lee, and they hadn't seen Doctor Feel, but they just thought they were kind of being nice and he's a singer. But they thought, well, he's quite conservative and mild mannered. I don't think this is really going to, you know. They didn't really know what to expect, and so he sort of, you know, ambled up to the stage not really wanting to, to do it but you know and got up there and just blew their heads off um, and, and I think they did a version of checking up on my baby or something and they just it was just so incendiary people just sort of gaping open mouthed just looking at this madman on the stage who just five minutes ago was sort of quietly sipping yeah. a gin and tonic at the yeah. bar so it was all part of this kind of rock and roll Jekyll and Hyde <laughs> character but that was when Shirley first encountered Lee and um, and she came back to Canvey Island. Island. She did, yes. From Louisiana. Yes, yeah. Which has quite a lot in common, doesn't well, it? Well, yeah, yeah. She said, you know, certainly the kind of the oil refineries and the kind of Galveston swampy marshes and the shacks and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah definitely yeah. parallels. But it was, a, it was a kind of on-off relationship, is that fair to say? Or? Well, it was, they were, you know, it was a fiery relationship, I suppose. I think they both kind of absolutely bonded, you know, straight away and were crazy about each other, but, you know, both quite sort of strong characters, to say the least, and I think, you know, she actually said it herself, you know, if he wasn't um, 
away a lot of the time. They, their marriage might not have continued because they did have a couple of breaks and, and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, obviously a massive amount of love there. That's brilliant. So it was him being away that made the relationship work <laughs> then. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's good. That's Quite an intense sort yeah. of character, yeah, I suppose, yeah. 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 But eventually got married. Yes, yes, right, they did. Right, right. And, and two days after, he was off on tour again, which didn't right. go down very well. No, 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 no. <laughs> no honeymoon. Right. So, uh, yes. Yeah, and, and had children. Yes, they did, yeah. Two kids, um, Kelly and Nicholas. And, uh, and the funny thing is that Kelly is actually a lawyer now. So she's sort of, it's a, there must be some kind of solicitor, sort oh, of legal right. DNA that she's kind of working through because, you know, obviously that you was got something. Got a rock he... star's kid who's got a proper job. That's, <laughs> that's rebellion. That's, that's, <laughs> not that's a the ultimate wreck. rebellion. Yeah. That's, that's the ultimate rebellion. Yes. So, ah. sorry, I just wanted Borneo to. Fred Munt, isn't that? Yeah, the, yeah yes, they yeah. wanted somebody to help, you know, control their drinking. So they got a former <laughs> drinking partner of the Bonzo, Bonzo. Dog Do. But also, that's part of the whole folklore, isn't it, of hanging around with people called Borneo Fred Munt. That's that's back to your gentleman thing again, isn't it? Absolutely. Ludicrous, faux, aristocratic goons. They used to sort of collect characters, apparently, on the road, and they just sort of just just kind of loved it because, you know, a certain element of touring is quite boring, you know, sitting around in vans and all that. So they kind of collect strange, eccentric people and kind of take them with them. And after, after a while, obviously, that would sometimes start to kind of pall a bit. But, you know, it, it was just, they, they, you know, Fred, Borneo Fred Munt was, was entertaining. You know, he'd, come, <laughs> he'd sort of he'd just sort of do really mad things or kind of like take them to kind of, oh, he, he was quite a bad influence on them, I think, you know, if, if that was even possible. But uh, So was it, was it, was Lee just in love with the life in the end? You know, because Dr. Fieldgood, they reached a certain point and then they never got beyond it in terms of, commercial appeal. Yeah, I but think... But they kept on, you know, there was always a Dr. Feelgood, wasn't there? Absolutely. I think it was, it was almost... I hope I'm not being unfair in saying it. It seemed like a bit of an obsession from Lee's point of view um, to sort of keep on playing. It was almost like the way he would talk about Dr. Feelgood was, was almost like he was talking about a, a public service. You know, we've got to keep gigging, you know, cheering people up and sort of giving people a, sort of an hour of escapism. And, you know, he very much saw it in those terms. And it didn't matter if there was only one person in the audience, the promoter hadn't done their job, they were doing that show and they were doing it as well as possible. And he sort of very much had that kind of old showman kind of ethos and I think certainly but yeah I mean the drinking was a massive part of it and certainly to you know in the early 80s figure and Sparco um, the drummer and the uh, bass player the sort of definitive lineup just were exhausted and, and it, it, they just sort of can't take it anymore and it's just such a shame because they just needed a bit of time off and it just wasn't going to happen they wanted to go home and go to bed just have a bit of a sleep yeah. Yeah, see their family for the first time in a couple yeah, of years no, or I, I can totally see that just, yeah. yeah but he was sort of dogged in his sort of determination to just keep touring keep working yeah, yeah, yeah. quite quite obsessive. I, sorry, I, I threw this in because this, this was... I, I'd looked this up today because I thought it was his favourite book. And this it? is a book, it's a pastiche of an 18th century gentleman's diary and it describes the lead character as someone who fires his pistol at dissenters, uh, poachers and foreigners. <laughs> it's brilliant. And it's all full of kind of, uh, you know, rambunctious drinking types and prostitutes. It's just, it's just a hilarious spoof, isn't it? So that was that, but that, was that part of him. Yeah, it was yeah, a very yeah. important side of him. Yeah. So did he make any money? I think he did. I mean, he called his, uh, his house, he famously called his house the Proceeds. There's a ceramic flat. Did it say that outside? The Proceeds, yes. That's a good one. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And weirdly enough, I actually, um, when uh, my husband and I moved... Uh, to Leon C, uh, we found a flat there. We were, uh, we were just renting at the time, and uh, and uh, weirdly enough, we realised that we were actually living next door to the proceeds. 
Uh, oh, it, just, really? it, was, it was a coincidence. It was very, very strange. Uh, I hadn't started working on the Lee book at that point. I was working with, with Wilco on his book, but it was just very odd, very odd sort of uh, synchronicities <laughs> were meant to be. But yeah, the proceeds, yeah, he did, he, he was, I think he was quite canny. Didn't they dress up in tweeds? You know, oh, yes, he had a monocle and, and a fez. Monocle and go into... Tell me the fez. Yes, it's like yes. a deer stalker. <laughs> yes, go into Soho and hang around. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I love that dedication to being completely bonkers. It's all sort of like assuming characters. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he read lots of, you know, as you say, yeah, books like that. And he, he loved kind of film. And he it was almost like he kind of absorbed characters into himself. And, and it was almost just sort of fun, I suppose. But he also liked kind of messing with people a little bit so he'd kind of wear a very sort of tweedy suit and maybe a deer stalker but carry a Millwall bag yeah. just because he knew that it would confuse people on the train and it just yeah he was just sort of like constantly taking the piss basically so what what happened he got ill he did yes and he was very young um he uh he passed away um actually uh last week was the uh 22 year anniversary God, of his passing yeah so he was 41 when he died I was just a month away from his 42nd birthday. And the weird thing is that he... It's, it's hard to believe he was that young for lots of reasons, but it was almost like he lived his life in fast forward. It was almost... Even from being a kid, he was so ahead of his time. Everyone thought he was at least five, five years older. Uh, and certainly when he was my age, you know, sort of late 30s, he was almost behaving a bit like a sort of an elderly country gent. You know, so it was quite a strange... You know, he was very much doing his own thing and doing what he wanted. But it was almost like... I don't know if I'm sort of being... I don't know, but it was almost like maybe subliminally he felt like he, maybe he didn't have that much time. And so and he had, had such kind of an upbeat you know, attitude towards being ill, wasn't he? He was so kind of you know, enthusiastic and yeah, ahead. Absolutely, and he, yeah, he continued as long as he could. And, um, you know, I think it, obviously it was massively, incredibly harrowing for everybody around him, but he was, seemed very philosophical. Um, and obviously, you know, the love of food didn't wane and people would sort of sneak curries into hospital, you know, and sort of like they'd draw the curtains around him and sort of set it up with napkins and do it all very nicely. He was, loved a curry. And, uh, you know, even towards the end, he was sort of very morphined up and you know, sort of rambling away. One of the things Just he said screams. was... Uh, he, he said, what, what, what's for dinner? I haven't seen the menu yet. That was one of the last things that, that he said to one of his friends who came to visit. I mean, he was even there, you know, it was all about kind of the things he loved to do. Um, but he was determined to um, do two shows um, when he it really didn't look very good. And it was Christmas time, I think the Christmas before he went. And, um, and he said to Chris Fennick, I want to do two, two shows. And Chris said, are you sure that's a good idea? You're, you know, you're not sort of very strong. And he said, well, I might be even less strong you know, after that. So let's not wait. Let's just do it. Please organise it for me. And so, uh, and so it was organised. Two, two dates on Canvey Island um, at the Dr. Feelgood Bar. And uh, they recorded one of the nights, um, sort of made a live album out of it called Down at the Doctors, which I'm sure many of you know. And, uh, and it is an absolutely fantastic album. And his voice sounds amazing. And you can't believe that someone so frail could just... It was almost like, I don't know, he was channeling. I don't know. There was yeah. just something amazing about how he sounded uh, that night. But, you know, pictures of him are very distressing. He, did, he just doesn't look like him at all. He's like a little old man, very, very frail. But this voice just transcended his illness. And I think after that, it was very kind of psychologically quite difficult for him because then he realised that probably really is it. You know, I probably am not going to do this again. I Can think you think of home. any bands where you could feel, uh, subsequently, where you could feel the repercussions of the feel goods you felt that were really influenced by them? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, especially now, actually. Yeah. It sort of feels like there's a real renaissance to that style. You know, bands like The Stripes, they're the first people yes. who come to mind, yeah, yeah. or with the 45s. Uh, very young, you know, kids, but absolutely in love with that... Uh, 
you know, that whole shtick and the energy and the attitude and also the kind of the R&B uh, music. Because, of course, punk was massively inspired, inspired by the feel-goods, but they weren't, you know, playing the same music. But it was, it was more about the attitude and the style, mm. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, the people like the Stripes. I think people are in... I think it's a lot is thanks to Oil City Confidential waking people up to yeah. the sound of the feel-goods yeah. again. Um, people are rediscovering those records and, um, and they're just so great, you know, they're just well, so it, good. It's also, it's also the look and the, and the attitude, isn't it? And it's great, a great English figure uh, and, a, and a worthy memoir. Uh, that's uh, Lee Brillo, Rock and Roll Gentleman uh, by Zoe Howe. Will you say thank you to, to Zoe Howe? Thank you very much. Thank you. And Zoe, I'm sure, will be happy to sign a copy of the book, uh, which I think, I think they've got them. Out there at the this podcast stand. was brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.